In my previous lecture, I suggested that one of the key figures in the ferment that led up to the astonishing decade that began with the fall of the Bastille in 1789 was Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose social contract laid many of the intellectual foundations of the revolution. I also suggested that along with the political revolution, there was a revolution in sensibility, in attitudes to the emotions, to women, to sexual relations and to children. I'm going to say more about childhood next time. But today, I want to begin by returning to that remark I quoted from A.W. Schlegel concerning Goethe's novel about young Werther. The novel, you remember he said, was a declaration of the rights of feeling, an idea of the rights of feeling to correspond with the declaration of the rights of man. Rousseau, too, offered such a declaration in the form of a novel. His Nouvelle Héloïse was the most widely read and widely imitated novel of the 18th century. The historian of the book, Robert Danton, reckons it was the best-selling secular book of the entire century, with over 70 editions in print by 1800. The story goes that it was so popular that publishers couldn't print enough copies to keep up with the demand, so they rented it out by the day or even the hour. Rousseau was overwhelmed with fan mail, telling him of the tears, swoons and ecstasies provoked in his readers. A modern reworking of the medieval story of Eloise and Abelard, it tells the story of a passionate love affair that crosses the boundaries of class, religious piety and decorum. The full title was Julie ou la Nouvelle Eloise, though when first published in Amsterdam in 1761, it was called Lettres de deux amants, letters of two lovers living in a small town at the foot of the Alps. The lover is Julie's tutor, Saint-Preux. Under the Ancien Régime, a posh girl cannot marry her tutor, especially if he is a holy man. But living in the sublime landscape of the Alps and spending time rowing on the beautiful lake, they cannot resist their passions. Their affair must, however, come to an end when upper-class Julie dutifully marries a baron chosen for her by her father. Saint-Preux goes off on a world tour. Six years later, he returns and is engaged once more, this time as tutor to Julie's children. They live happily and virtuously together, all passion duly restrained, enjoying a simple country life. But Julie has an epiphany when her child almost drowns. She has never stopped loving Saint-Preux, and soon she expires as if from pure emotional excess. For readers, the book thus demonstrated the power of passion over the demands of duty and the social order. The Catholic Church duly placed it on the index of prohibited books. But however, however often priests and moralists invade from pulpit and pamphlet against the dangers of novel reading, especially for women, the authorities could not prevent the spread of the cult of sensibility. And there was no literary form more suited to the expression of extreme emotion than poetry. So it was that in the spring of 1787, a London-based but cosmopolitan-inspired monthly journal called the European Magazine included in its poetry pages the first published work of a young man on the brink of his 17th birthday. It was entitled Sonnet on Seeing Miss Helen Maria Williams Weep at a Tale of Distress. The first half reads as follows. She wept. Life's purple tide began to flow in languid streams through every thrilling vein. Dim were my swimming eyes, my pulse beat slow, and my full heart was swelled to dear delicious pain. 
Life left my loaded heart and closing eye. A sigh recalled the wanderer to my breast. Dear was the pause of life, and dear the sigh that called the wanderer home and home to rest. These few lines travel the road from Rousseau to Romanticism. She wept, as did so many readers of Julie, especially female ones. In connecting with a book, a tale of distress, the reader also connects with the full tide of life with a capital L. The heart reaches out in the spirit of fellow feeling with suffering humanity. The key metaphor is that of a stream, a stream of consciousness perhaps, that will eventually flow into the sea of the unconscious. We are in the realm of sensibility. The fluvial image is internalised. The poet's eyes swim with tears in sympathy with those of Miss Helen Mariah Williams, as she in turn weeps in sympathy with the distress about which she is reading. Life flows along the bloodstream, thrilling the veins. And then the pulse slows and the heart is swelled to dear, delicious pain. Sympathy, or what we would now call empathy, brings, as a later and much greater poem would put it, sensations sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the heart. Sensations, the swelling heart, the excited flow of blood in the veins, the beating of the pulse, the idea that pain might have something delicious about it. Above all, that verb felt. These are going to be key words in poetry for the next 40 years. One might almost say that the entire sensibility of another precocious poet, John Keats, is bound within the nutshell of this cluster of images. Think of the ode to a nightingale and its cry, now more than ever seems it rich to die. At the core of this sonnet is the idea that a poem can offer a momentary pause of life. In momentarily suspending what a later sonnet would call the getting and spending of daily routine in which we lay waste our powers, poetry can call the wanderer home to rest. But what we come home to is a bond, a sympathy for humanity. Well, you will have guessed the identity of the teenage poet by now. The sonnet in the European magazine was signed Axiologos. Logos, words. Axios, worth. Words, worth. It is indeed a poem about the worth of words, the power of poetry. And Wordsworth, whose first published poem this is, will go on in company with his friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge to make unprecedented claims for that worth, for poetry as a form of salvation, a revolution of the self. Who then was Miss Helen Mariah Williams, whom we see here? Born in 1761, she was brought up by her mother in Berwick-upon-Tweed after her father died while she was an infant. She wrote poems from an early age. Brought to London at the age of 20, she was taken up by a Presbyterian minister who wrote a preface praising her first published poem, Edwin and Eltruda, published when she was just 21 years old. Set in the time of the English Civil War, it tells the story of lovers whose families fight on opposite sides, ending with their tragic death. Think Romeo and Juliet with a dash of La Nouvelle Héloise, particularly in the character of Eltruda, who is a young woman of extreme benevolence, her sympathy extending to every living thing. For the bruised insect on the waist, a sigh would heave her breast, and oft her careful hand replaced the linnet's falling nest. 
the naming there of a specific species of finch, the tender care for a bird's nest. Such details prefigure the delicate descriptions of the greatest of all the romantic poets of nature, John Clare, of whom we will hear a little in our fifth lecture of the season. One may also see the young Helen Maria Williams anticipating Wordsworth at his best. Eltruda is compared to a lonely flower that smiles in the desert vale. Well, that's a conventional enough image, an echo of Thomas Gray's famous lines in his elegy written in a country churchyard. Full many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. But in their rhythm of alternating tetrameters and trimeters, four-stressed and three-stressed lines, the following lines from Edwin and Eltruda feel very like a dry run for Wordsworth's mysterious, mesmerising Lucy poems, published in 1800. Thus Williams, So lived in solitude unseen this lovely peerless maid, so graced the wild sequester's scene and blossomed in the shade. And Wordsworth, she dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love, a violet by a mossy stone half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. The thing that is unique to Wordsworth is the intrusion of the poet's self in the final stanza, signalled by a startling exclamatory pause and the heartache of the closing line. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. Wordsworth is the great poet of me, of the self. Women were cautious about exposing their identity in print. Like all the novels which Jane Austen would publish in her lifetime, Williams's first book of poetry was anonymous. But in 1784, she boldly put her name on the title page of an epic poem called Peru. Two years later, she gathered her early works together with many new ones in a two-volume collection simply entitled Poems. It was published by the method of subscription, whereby purchasers paid up front to cover the cost of production. And over 1,500 people signed up, a remarkable number for a volume of poetry by a young woman. Among Williams's readers was the teenage Wordsworth. He never literally saw Helen Maria Williams weeping at a tale of distress. He read her poems and projected an image of her as the sympathetic poet. His sonnet was almost certainly inspired by a passage in Peru, which concerns the Spanish massacre of the Incas. It's a manifestation of her anti-imperial pacifist sensibility. In a footnote, she writes, in anticipation of the coming revolutions and the freedom of the slaves, there is much reason to hope that these injured nations may recover the liberty of which they have been so cruelly deprived. And liberty is going to be one of our watchwords. But at the climax of Peru, Williams introduces a personification of sensibility, weeping for the Incas. A visionary figure descends from the clouds. It lights on earth, mild vision, gentle form. Tis sensibility. Wet with the dew of tears, a ray of pity beaming from her eyes, sensibility addresses, ye to whose yielding hearts my power endears, the transport blended with delicious tears, the bliss that swells to agony the breast, the sympathy that robs the soul of rest. So you can see there where the language of Wordsworth's sonnet comes from. 
His clever device is to combine this figure with its creator. He makes Helen Mariah Williams into the very embodiment of sensibility. This idea that strong emotion, weeping especially, is an essential part of what it is to be human because it answers to the moral imperative to feel for others and show benevolence towards them is the key to both Williams and Wordsworth. Well, in 1788, Williams published an anti-slavery poem. Then in 1790, her first novel appeared. Its very title, Julia, revealed the influence of Rousseau. In a digression in its second volume, Williams introduced a new poem of her own under the pretense that it was written by a character in the novel. The character is in a terrible prison. The poem is called The Bastille, A Vision. Soon after her novel was published, Helen Maria Williams set off for France. She arrived in Paris on the very eve of the first anniversary of the fall of the Bastille. She'd gone straight into the eye of the revolutionary storm. Later that year, she published her Letters Written in France in the summer 1790 to a friend in England containing various anecdotes relative to the French Revolution. I arrived in Paris, she begins her first letter, the day before the Federation. The Fête de la Fédération was the, the great national celebration of the, the new political regime, 14th of July. Of course, we now call it Bastille Day. She gives thanks for the good fortune of a speedy journey. Had the packet, which means the ship, which conveyed me from Brighton to Dieppe, sailed a few hours later, or the wind been contrary, in short, had I not reached Paris at the moment I did reach it, I should have missed the most sublime spectacle which was ever represented on the theatre of this earth. And week by week, she reported from the front line, praising every aspect of the early days of the revolution. It was the triumph of humankind, man asserting the noblest privileges of his nature, and it required but the common feelings of humanity to become in that moment a citizen of the world. I acknowledge that my heart caught with enthusiasm the general sympathy, my eyes filled with tears, her eyes do fill with tears a lot, and I shall never forget the sensations of that day. In the act of becoming one of her country's few field correspondents at the scene of the epoch-making events, she moves her vocabulary of sensibility, heart, sympathy, tears, sensations, into the political arena. On the very day of her arrival in Paris, a pair of Cambridge students who had just taken their third-year exams crossed the Channel at the beginning of a summer vacation walking tour. They spent that night of 13th July 1790 in Calais, and the next day they witnessed the celebrations of the Federation in the town of Ardres. There they were on a far smaller scale than those in which Helen Maria Williams rejoiced in Paris, but they were no less ardent. Years later, one of the two students, you can guess who, remembered the day in a sonnet addressed to his companion on the road. I love this one. So the sonnet begins, Jones. His, friend, his college friend's called Robert Jones. Jones, when from Calais southward you and I travelled on foot together, then this way which I am pacing now, he's writing this in 1802 when he's back in France, I'll tell you why a bit later, was like the May with festivals of newborn liberty, that word again, a homeless sound of joy was in the sky. The antiquated earth, as one might say, beat like the heart of man. It's the heart again. Songs, garlands, play, banners, and happy faces far and nigh. 
However, the purpose of Wordsworth and Jones's holiday was picturesque tourism, not political engagement. They did not go to Paris. Instead, they walked through rural France, took boats down the Saône and Rhone rivers on their way to such great tourist sites as the Monastery of the Grand Chartreuse, the Haute Sauvoie, the Vale of Chamonix and the site of Mont Blanc. They crossed the Alps via the Simplon Pass, not realising the point at which they'd reached the summit, then wandered around the Swiss and North Italian lakes, Maggiore, Lugano, Como. It sounds like a great tour. By the end of August, it was back to Lucerne, Zurich and Constance, then in September to Bern and Basel, where they bought a boat to sail along the Rhine to Cologne, where they sold the boat before returning to England to prepare for final examinations prior to graduation in January 1791. <laughs> After going down from Cambridge, Wordsworth followed the typical graduand's path of moving to London and not finding work. In the summer, he went to Wales and spent several months on another walking tour with Jones, this time in Jones's native mountains. Back in London, though, he made the bold move to return to France. While waiting to embark in Brighton, he called on another female poet whose work he admired, Charlotte Smith. She gave him letters of introduction one of them was addressed to none other than Helen Maria Williams, who had this, this, by this time moved to Orléans. He arrived in Paris by night at the end of November. He immediately fell in with the Girondins, the more moderate faction in the National Assembly, and he visited the Assembly. He may indeed have been introduced to the more radical Jacobin club. Either now or on a return visit a year later, he got to know an extraordinary English philosopher called Walking Stuart, whom we will meet at the end of this lecture, so please stay awake. A few days later, he was off to Orléans to visit Helen Maria Williams, but he missed her because she had just headed back to Paris. However, he stayed in Orléans for nearly a year and made two of the most important acquaintances of his life, a pro-revolutionary military officer called Michel Beaupuy, and a girl called Annette Vallon, who would bear his illegitimate daughter. All these events are recorded in great detail in the epic autobiographical poem that was posthumously christened The Prelude, though in the case of the affair with Annette, he disguises it in a, in a Romeo and Juliet-like story called Vaudricourt and Julia, that name again. Among the most memorable passages in The Prelude are an embedded ode to the joy of revolutionary hope, O oh, pleasant exercise of hope and joy, for great were the auxiliars which then stood upon our side, we who were strong in love. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. And then there is a lesson from Beaupuy on the need to eradicate poverty and inequality. And when we chanced one day to meet a hunger-bitten girl, I love this thing about Wordsworth, one moment it's a great rhetorical flourish, and the next it's just very ordinary, down to earth, we're just out for a walk and we meet a hunger-bitten girl. And when we chanced one day to meet a hunger-bitten girl who crept along, fitting her languid self unto a heifer's motion by a cord tied to her arm, and picking thus from the lane its sustenance, while the girl with her two hands was busy knitting in a heartless mood of solitude. And at the sight, my friend, that's Beaupuy, in agitation said, "'Tis against that which we are fighting." I with him believed devoutly that a spirit was abroad which could not be withstood, that poverty, at least like this, would in a little time be found no more. And then he goes on to speak of finally a sum and crown of all should see the people having a strong hand in making their own laws, whence better days to all mankind.' 
Here, the language of democratic and radical politics is mingled with that of strong feeling, agitation of the spirits, attunement to the mood of solitude. We are back in the territory of Rousseau as he moves between his social contract with its idea of the power of the will of the people and, on the other hand, the novel of sensibility and his reveries of the solitary walker. Two weeks after the publication of Helen Maria Williams' letters written in France, with Wordsworth back in Cambridge after his Alpine walking tour, Edmund Burke launched the counter-offensive to this vein of radical thought. Reflections on the revolution in France described the uprising of the people as the most astonishing that has hitherto happened in the world. A generation later, the poet, critic and journalist Lee Hunt, who had been imprisoned for libeling the Prince Regent, argued in the preface to a volume of his poetry that during his lifetime there had been a comparable astonishing revolution in poetry. As the Ancien Régime had been overthrown in France, so in English poetry, the French-influenced neoclassicism associated with Alexander Pope and his followers had been consigned to history. This has undoubtedly been owing, in the first instance, Lee Hunt writes, to the political convulsions of the world, which shook up the minds of men and rendered them too active and speculative to be satisfied with commonplaces. The second cause, he suggests, is the revived inclination for our older and great school of poetry, which he says is exemplified by the elevation of Shakespeare to the status of national poet and divine genius. And he's also talking about that fashion for medievalism, for old ballads, for Ossian and so forth, which I talked about last time. But the third, and not the least, Hunt concludes, was the accession of a new school of poetry itself, of which Wordsworth has justly the reputation of being the most prominent ornament, but whose inner priest of the temple, perhaps, was Coleridge. And that preface of Lee Hunt's goes on to offer a succinct summary of the essence of poetry as understood by this new school. The secret of poetry, Lee Hunt explains, is a sensitiveness to the beauty of the external world, to the unsophisticated impulses of our nature, and above all, imagination, or the power to see with verisimilitude what others do not. These are the properties of poetry, seeing what others do not. As Wordsworth put it in one of his very greatest lyrics, poetry happens when the beauty of the external world works in unison with the feelings Sorry. Uh, when the beauty of the external world works in unison with the feelings and the imagination to create an elevated quasi-sacred state in which even the motion of our human blood is almost suspended. And we, are, which again, that idea of that pause, which we saw in that first sonnet. And we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. We see into the life of things. One of the questions I want to explore in the second half of this lecture is whether this new theory of poetry constituted a philosophical revolution or a political one, or both. And I'll seek an answer at the end of the lecture when I turn to this poem in more detail. 
Well, the principal members of uh, the new school were first known as the Lake Poets, but eventually they and their successors, including the circle around Lee Hunt, Keats, Shelley, Byron, and the prose writers Hazlitt, De Quincey, and Lamb, became known as the Romantics. And their innovations were duly described as a revolution akin to that in France. I think, if I'd happily stand corrected, that the first person to group them and name them as such was the French critic Hippolyte Taine in A History of English Literature, published in 1864. There he tells of how, on the eve of the 19th century, began in Europe the great modern revolution. The thinking public and the human mind changed. And underneath these two collisions, a new literature sprang up. So Taine was thinking of a triple revolution, not only the political one in France, but also the industrial one in England. He says the steam engine and spinning jenny create in England towns of from 350,000 to 500,000 souls. And also the philosophical revolution that began in Germany, about which I spoke a good deal in my last lecture. He speaks there of the disease of the age, the restlessness of Werther and Faust, discontent with the present, the vague desire of a higher beauty and an ideal happiness, the painful aspiration for the infinite. Man suffers from doubt. He expends himself like Faust in anxious researches through science and history and judges them vain. It is the beyond he sighs for. By the end of the 19th century, it had become commonplace to use the word revolution to describe the literary innovations that had occurred at the dawn of that century. So, for example, in another history of English literature by the biographer and scholar Edmund Goss, we read of the Romantic Revolution of 1798. That was the year when, under the imprint of a minor provincial publisher, a slender volume of poetry was published, with no author's name on the cover and the unassuming title, Lyrical Ballads, with a few other poems. The authors were William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, although in the British Library copy of the first edition, some early reader has guessed that it is by the other late poet, Mr Salvey, and someone else has then crossed it out and put Wordsworth. Poor old Coleridge gets left out. So, what were the contents of the lyrical ballads of 1798? First, let's think a bit about that anonymous title page. Why no author's names? Well, Coleridge provided an explanation in a letter to his friend Joseph Cottle, who was a poet himself, and Cottle was the Bristol publisher who saw the volume into print. This is the period where Coleridge and Wordsworth are living in Somerset, in the West Country, Coleridge at Nether Stowey, Wordsworth nearby, with strong Bristol connections. Coleridge had indeed delivered a series of lectures attacking the slave trade in Bristol, which of course was a great slave port. This is what Coleridge writes to, to Cottle. As to anonymous publications, depend on it, you are deceived. Cottle has said, oh, we shouldn't publish it anonymously. We really ought to put your names on it. Uh, and Coder is writing back to say why they shouldn't put their names on it. Wordsworth's name is nothing. And to a large number of persons, mine stinks. Well, Wordsworth's name was nothing because his only previous volumes of poetry, descriptive sketches and an evening walk, had sunk almost without trace. Coleridge's name was Mud because he had developed a reputation as a dangerous radical. 
not only for those lectures on the slave trade, but also because he edited a periodical, a radical periodical called, called The Watchman, and because his poems were perceived as radical. Just take a, a look at this. It's a famous caricature by James Gilray in an anti-radical magazine called the Anti-Jacobin. The Jacobins were, of course, the extreme radicals in France. And it's called New Morality. Um, and it, it's a, it caricatures all the leading radical writers of the 1790s and their, and their works. They're bowing down um, at the shrine of uh, a priest uh, or, uh, called, called Le Pau, uh, who was a Frenchman who had been instrumental in ensuring that atheism was at the heart of the French Revolution. Um, and uh, notice in the background there um, the, 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 the three figures in the sort of temple. One is called Justice, one is called Philanthropy, and one is called Sensibility. Philanthropy doesn't quite mean what it means to us. Literally, phil, from Greek philos, anthropos, love of man. Le Pau espoused a kind of new secular religion called theophilanthropy. Uh, the idea, um, friends of man. The very word friendship, friend, was associated with this kind of radical anti-Christian thought. And we, our friend's sensibility is there associated with these new radical politics. Um, if we look closely, I've just tried to put a little yellow circle on it. You can see two asses there. Um, uh, one uh, is, is, is reading, um, it says, Southey's Sapphics. And the one at the top is reading Coleridge's Dactylics. These are references to volumes of poetry that Southey and Coleridge had published. And uh, down at the bottom is a frog and a toad uh, holding blank verse. And there are uh, two chaps called Charles Lloyd and Charles Lamb, who were very close friends of Wordsworth and Coleridge. And uh, among the verses at the bottom of the caricature, we read a reference to, and ye five other wandering bards that move in sweet accord of harmony and love. Again, see how those lang that language of harmony and love is associated with radicalism. Those bards, C dot dot DGE Coleridge and Salvi, Lloyd and Lamb and Co. Tune all your mystic harps to praise Le Poe. Some people have actually suggested that the fifth bard, the and Co, is Wordsworth. I don't think that's right. I think it's actually Cottle, the publisher. Um, but it, this clearly shows the way that the circle around Coleridge was associated with political radicalism. Well, the anxiety to maintain the anonymity of the authors of the volume was such that after the Bristol edition of Lyrical Ballads went into print, one of Coleridge's contributions to the collection was removed because they realised it had already been published elsewhere and could have been traced back to him. It's hard to see on the slide, but if you look on the left-hand side, which is the Bristol edition, there's a poem called Lutie or the Circassian Love Chant. On the right-hand side, which is the London edition published a few months later, it's replaced by a new poem called The Nightingale, a conversational poem. And that led to the page numbers being screwed up in the London edition. There was another difference between the Bristol and London versions. Wordsworth decided that the innovative poetic project needed an explanatory preface so he inserted an advertisement in which he explained that the poems were to be considered as experiments. And again, that very word experiment is associated with political radicalism. The French Revolution and all its works were thought of as a radical experiment in reorganising society. 
They were written chiefly with a view to ascertain how far the language of conversation in the middle and lower classes of society is adapted to the purposes of poetic pleasure. The trouble with posh, highly educated poets, Wordsworth implies, is that they don't speak the language of ordinary people. They all too frequently resort to what Wordsworth goes on to call the gaudiness and inane phraseology of modern writers. These poems, by contrast, he says, may seem strange and awkward, but they contain a natural delineation of human passions, human characters, and human incidents. And again, those words natural associated with nature and the idea of humanity at the key. He also says these are in the spirit not of the genteel poetry of the 18th century, but of our elder writers, by which he means the popular culture of medieval ballads and the plays of Shakespeare with their mingling of kings and clowns, the elite and the people. He adds that the opening uh, and much the longest poem in the collection, Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, was professedly written in imitation of the style as well as the spirit of the elder poets. And of course that explains why the original text of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in Lyrical Ballads 1719 has this archaic spelling. It is the rhyme of the ancient marinari. It is an ancient marinari and he stoppeth one of three. Um, Coleridge later uh, got rid of that, that kind of antiquated spelling. Well, what about Wordsworth's poetry in the collection? The first of his contributions is about a baby abandoned at birth. The two longest poems are about, respectively, a Down's syndrome boy and a female vagrant. Others are about impoverished old people, a shepherd fallen on hard times, a convict an old man travelling to a hospital to visit his war-wounded son, and a dungeon that might as well be the Bastille, not to mention a mad mother and a forsaken Indian woman. And it's that kind of material that led Lee Hunt's friend, the great critic William Hazlitt, to associate lyrical ballads with the French Revolution. Hazlitt first met Coleridge when he tramped for miles over the fields from his native Wem in Shropshire, solely in order to hear Coleridge preach. He boldly befriended his hero and got himself an invitation to Nether Stowey in the West Country, where Coleridge was living near Wordsworth. Here's Hazlitt in early June 1798. In the afternoon, Coleridge took me over to Alfoxton, a romantic old family mansion belonging to the St Obin family, where Wordsworth lived. William wasn't there, but Sister Dorothy gave them tea and free access to her brother's poems, the lyrical ballads, which were still in manuscript. Then the next morning, Hazlitt writes, as soon as breakfast was over, we strolled out into the park and seating ourselves on the trunk of an old ash tree, Coleridge read aloud with a sonorous and musical voice Wordsworth's ballad of Betty Foy. I saw touches of truth and nature. And then in the thorn, the mad mother and the complaint of a poor Indian woman, I felt that deeper power and pathos which have since been acknowledged as the characteristics of this author. And the sense of a new style and a new spirit in poetry came over me. It had to me something of the effect that arises from the turning up of the fresh soil or the first welcome breath of spring. This was Hazlitt's first acquaintance with the power and pathos of Wordsworth's poetry. Though his relationship with the poet himself would become awkward, Hazlitt remained a consistent champion of him as the most original poet now living. His poetry, a pure emanation of the spirit of the age, because he saw Wordsworth's work as the English literary equivalent of the French Revolution. 
He says it, found, it had something in the principles and events of the French Revolution. The change in, in poetry was as complete as the change in politics. There was a mighty ferment in the heads of statesmen and poets, kings and people. All the commonplace figures of poetry, the tropes and allegories, were discarded. Capital letters were no more allowed in print than letters patent of nobility permitted in life. Kings and queens were dethroned from their rank in legitimate tragedy or poetry as they were decapitated elsewhere. Rhyme was looked upon as a relic of the feudal system and regular metre was abolished along with regular government. Well, Hazard is slightly teasing Wordsworth at this point because he's, he's actually writing this during the Regency years by which time Wordsworth's politics have moved to the right. But there's no doubting Hazlitt's conviction that for Wordsworth to write about Botany Bay convicts, female vagrants and gypsies, idiot boys and mad mothers, is to take the spirit of democracy into poetry. But what about the more inward, personal, meditative, memory-based and philosophical poems in lyrical ballads? They can really hardly be described, as Wordsworth claimed his poems were, to speak the real language of ordinary men. Not many men or women can speak like this. I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky, and in the mind of man, a motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognise in nature and the language of the sense the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul of all my moral being. It's a famous passage from the freshly written poem that Wordsworth inserted at the very end of Lyrical Ballads, the very last minute before publication. The poem is called Lines, written a few miles above Tintern Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July the 13th, 1798. Why did Wordsworth bother to include the precise date of composition? Partly to create authenticity in the memory, a specific time as well as a specific place. To emphasise the idea of the poem as to use a, a phrase from the preface that he wrote in 1800 for the second edition of Lyrical Ballads, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. But also, surely, to evoke the resonance of July the 13th, the eve of Bastille Day, the anniversary of his first landing in France. So what does a landscape poem written in the Wye Valley have to do with the revolution in France? To answer that question, let's take Wordsworth back to Paris in the days leading up to the guillotining of the king and Marie Antoinette. He was in the eye of the storm, just like Helen Marie Williams. More so, perhaps, he saw the blood of the victims of, of the September massacres in the Place du Carousel. He witnessed the execution of a man that he knew, Gorsa, one of the leading moderates. 
He would lie awake in his hotel, imagining a voice tainting him with a guilty conscience for having welcomed the liberty that had now turned to terror. By 1798, he has detached himself from revolutionary fervour. So one aspect of the politics of Tintin Abbey is elegiac. No longer the the youthful enthusiast, he is an older and a wiser man, responsive to what he calls the still sad music of humanity. And he is in retreat from the city, the place of social unrest and change. But the revolution within, the declaration of the rights of feeling, has not been revoked. To answer my initial question about whether the Romantic Revolution was political, philosophical or both, in the case of Wordsworth and Coleridge, as time passed and events in France became more bloody under Robespierre and the sinister Committee of Public Safety, their support for the political revolution stalled. But the philosophical revolution endured. How so in Tintin Abbey? Look again at those phrases. We see into the life of things. Emotion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. The orthodox Christian thought of the period would deny that things have life. What is this motion and spirit rolling through all things? What is behind the claim that nature and the language of the sense, as opposed to God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul, of all my moral being? What would a churchman say about a poem that finds divinity not in heaven but in an earthly landscape? A poetic voice that worships all that we behold from this green earth. Wordsworth narrowly missed meeting Helen Maria Williams in revolutionary France, but someone he did meet in Paris was a man known as Walking Stuart. He was eccentric. He had walked halfway round the world, from Madras through Persia, Arabia, Abyssinia, much of North Africa, and every country in Europe as far as Russia. He refused to take carriages because they were both elitist and cruel to horses. He came to believe that some universal empire of revolutionary police terror would ban his books, so he urged readers to translate them into Latin, a precaution against the decay of the English language, and bury them seven feet underground and pass down their locations orally until the dawn of the age of the the Stuartian man made their disinterment possible. Despite these bizarre beliefs, Thomas de Quincey, who wrote a wonderful essay about him, said that Stuart's political views seemed to Wordsworth and myself every way worthy of a philosopher. There he is. Stuart's philosophy, expounded in books with titles such as The Apocalypse of Nature and The Revelation of Nature, was a theory of materialism influenced by Spinoza and Holbach, combined with a distinctive belief, partly inspired by his travels in the East, in a single universal consciousness. Spinoza's pantheism, the belief that there is no transcendent or personal deity, that God is to be found in nature, in things, was abhorrent to the church. It would fascinate Coleridge. At the time of lyrical ballads, a government spy overheard him and Wordsworth in animated conversation about Spinoza and reported back to the Home Office that they were in contact with a spy named Nosy. Spinoza, spy Nosy. As for Baron Holbach, His pseudonymously published anti-religious polemic, The System of Nature, with its argument that there is no necessity to have recourse to supernatural powers to account for the formation of things, 
This was what underpinned the state-decreed atheism of the French Revolution. The universe, Holbach argued, was nothing more than matter in motion. Wordsworth learned of Spinoza from Coleridge, but probably never read him. He didn't own a copy of Holbach's System of Nature till much later. His acquaintance with Walking Stewart in Paris meant that he didn't need a first-hand knowledge of these radically influential thinkers. In his Apocalypse of Nature, Stuart praised Holbach for completing the destruction of error and purging the human mind of prejudice. And he made a series of claims that I believe were profoundly formative of Wordsworth's mind. He begins with matter and motion. Motion is the force or soul of matter and cause of all action. Hence Wordsworth's motion that impels all thinking things and all objects of all thought. Stuart's definition of man this machine is formed of particles of matter, organised so as to resemble a corded instrument of music of five strings, which correspond with the five senses. This idea chimed with Coleridge's notion, which also deeply influenced Wordsworth, of the human mind as an aeolian harp trembling into thought. For Stuart, the self and nature are inextricably linked. Self, he says, as a part of all nature, is immortal and universal. Self pervades nature in its revolutions and operations. Self is as much concerned in the present or future health and happiness of nature as the hand is, is concerned in that of the body. The further one reads into Stuart's Apocalypse of Nature, the more deeply one understands that the animated nature of Tintin Abbey the poet's vision of the life of things is deeply bound to the philosophies of pantheism and materialism that were at the ideological heart of the French Revolution. Yes, there was eventually a political retreat, but at the core of Romanticism, there remained what Walking Stewart, at the climax of his apocalypse of nature, called the religion of nature, and the first tenet of that religion is nature is the great integer of being or matter and motion without beginning as without end. Or, as Wordsworth put it, in his memory in the prelude of crossing the Simplon Pass on that walking tour with Jones in the bliss when it was dawn to be alive and to be young was very heaven, and note the use of the word apocalypse, echoing Stuart's title. The immeasurable height of woods decaying, never to be decayed, the stationary blasts of waterfalls, the torrents shooting from the clear blue sky, the rocks that muttered close upon our ears, black drizzling crags that spake by the wayside as if a voice were in them, were all like workings of one mind, the features of the same face, blossoms upon one tree, characters of the great apocalypse the types and symbols of eternity, of first and last and midst and without end. Thank you. Thank you.